G'day, it's Mick Cullen, host of the Rotary Wing Show. Wherever you are listening from, welcome. Thanks for coming to hang out once again as we get to chat helicopters. This is episode 112. In the last episode with James Cohens, we looked at the aircrew officer role in search and rescue and ambulance operations. We also touched on the flooding that occurred in a New South Wales town called Ugara and how it impacted one of James's fellow air crewmen. And that there was a GoFundMe campaign set up to support that family. In this episode, we continue that similar theme. You'll actually get to hear firsthand from Kyle Fenton what it was like to go from being the one rescuing others to now needing that same helicopter rescue for your own family and neighbours. It's a, a pretty gripping story. Before we get to that, though, Kyle takes us through what it's like to be a Blackhawk loadmaster in the Australian Army. He managed to spend time in operational support, air mobile, special operations, and as a loadmaster instructor. So he's able to give an overview of the, the many, many and varied tasks that a helicopter loadmaster could be asked to do in any particular week. It is a, a very cool aircrew job. Look, it's a, a pretty light edit, again, regards any bells and whistles on, on this episode. That's in the interest of getting it out the door while the, the flood support is timely. Uh, but in this case, I think the interview stands pretty well by itself. Do visit rotarywingshow.com if you want to see photos and access any of the links from the episodes. This is Kyle Fenton and his story. All right, Fenton, we've just been chatting before I hit record, and it turns out you were actually born in Redcliffe, which is where I'm sitting here at the moment. So there's a couple of uh, crossover points we've had been looking at our kind of histories. But, mate, welcome to the Rotary Wing Show, yeah. and thanks for being willing to have a chat. Yeah, small world, isn't it? Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I guess to continue the similarities, do you want to talk normal sort of thing? We'll go through a bit of history. Do you want to talk about how you got into sure. the Army and then I, I guess the when you saw the light and figured there, there might be a, a better way than, than doing things as a infantry? <laughs> yeah, um, I initially joined the Army in 2006 as a bit of a break from my chosen career path, which was in agriculture in uh, livestock production. And uh, I'd studied in, in Longreach in Queensland and thoroughly enjoyed it and was making it my home, but I was pretty burned out after college and trying to make it amongst all the, the cocky sons with all their contacts. So, yeah, I thought, oh, now's the time while I'm young and not tied down. So I, I took the plunge and enlisted into infantry, went to Kapuka in June 2006. Uh, it was really cold. Thoroughly enjoyed digging through granite with a small shovel in winter and, uh, yeah, a couple of Blackhawks flew over the top of our position right at about the point that my motivation was waning and uh, I saw a couple of guys hanging out the side on machine guns and thought that looked pretty cool. As soon as we got back from Bush, I, I looked it up and found out that you didn't have to be an officer, which was good because I was in Acapulco. Did my homework and transferred over immediately to aviation, became Grand Crewman Mission Support from there that I was you know, trying to work towards flying. We'll come back. We've kind of did a bit of planning beforehand, and I reckon there's a, a heap to pull out of that ground crewman position uh, in terms of mm-hmm. setting up for, for later things for yourself, but also just like the what you learn in that position. But yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I guess the similarities there is same thing. I went out, left school. I think uh, I was a bit burnt out after school. 
maybe a little bit of teenage rebellion there. Wasn't quite ready to go to, to uni. And uh, they mm-hmm. had the, the ready reserve scheme where you did a year full time and then they'd basically pay you for to, to go through university and give you some cash free spending money. So that sounded like a pretty good deal. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I had no idea what I'd end up. I actually ended up in artillery and oh, wow. in the process of yeah, doing a, you know, a couple of different exercises, managed to, to get a, a couple of helicopter flights. But in, until then, I, I, I guess, you, you know, if you don't know anyone who's flying a helicopter and you don't get a chance to see one up close, it's just not on your radar as a as a, a life option. I always knew I wanted to fly, and I'd done Air Force Cadets. You know, I had I went solo before I had a car license, it's like all those things. But helicopters mm-hmm. had just hadn't even crossed my mind until actually getting a chance to, to fly in them uh, in the army. But the the, the flip side is, yeah, I, we did a, a trip, and it was at uh, Pakapanil, and again a whole heap of infantry. Guys have been out in the field probably for a week, just like you said, digging holes. And uh, we <laughs> parked on the parade ground uh, there at the, the barracks. And probably that morning, you know, we'd rolled out of the, the officer's mess, fired the, the helicopter up. It was probably like a, all of a five-minute flight to, to go and land in the, in the training area. And, uh, yeah, these poor guys all came out for a familiarisation safety brief. We did take them for, for flights. Yeah, they're sitting there listening to the safety brief. Us as air crew <laughs> there in completely clean cams, They've been digging in, in dust and sleeping in the bottom of, of trenches for like the, the last week or so. And yeah, I think we did a, a pretty good sales job on, on that particular day as well. So no doubt. It's, yeah. uh, yeah. it definitely goes around like that. That's the, the deal. All right. So yeah. ground, yeah. Okay. So ground crew and mission support uh-huh. for someone who's never heard of that job title before. What does that kind of cover and tail and what did you get up to? Yeah, it used to just be like an aircraft handler position. Then they split the trade a couple of years before I joined. So the physical outside work was that the Farfies did that. And then the inside, you know, sitting behind the radios, flight following, mission planning, dealing with all the, you know, cryptographic radio equipment, that sort of thing, uh, was the side of the house that I got into. Not at all how it was planned out. I actually opted for the other side and, uh, drew the short straw when they overfilled the course. So I, I ended up there just by someone else's design and yeah just tried to make the most of it, out of it because I was just trying to get into flying anyway so yeah I mean it, it, it's a good introduction because you get to know all the various sides of an army aviation unit while remaining um, you're very involved but uh, you get a little bit more time to appreciate the various jobs and, and network going on because you're not uh, at the the coal face so much it's just sort of just behind the scenes a bit so yeah i i absolutely use that to my advantage i just saw that as oh, i don't don't want to don't want to be in this job but um you know what can i get out of it and for me it was a really great opportunity that um i felt like i used well to just network amongst the unit play you know make some some good mates in different all the various areas and engineering and air crew and soak up as much as i could and they that allowed me to call in a few favours to fast track things later on, which really helped, and also benefited myself and my uh, colleagues down the track because I'd formed those relationships. Uh, and there's often a bit of stigma between some of the various sections of an army aviation unit and the air crew, so that allowed me to sort of try and break through that a little bit. It does, yeah. We we tend to form kind of very pillarized organizations where we go through. But there's a couple of parallels yeah. there. Like as you were talking through that, I'm sure there's student pilots 
who are thinking similar things. Like when you land that first job as a, you know, possibly ground crew, you know, say in a tourism operation, you're doing much of the similar sort of things uh, and it's just a chance to sit there and basically stew in an aviation environment and, and suck up all those bits and pieces. Uh, so it's, yeah, yeah, it's not wasted time. <laughs> Everyone likes to jump in a yeah. helicopter and go flying, but, um, oh, you know, sure. sometimes it's sort of just getting that background uh, exposure. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting the parallels like there. Yeah, but that two years as Grand Crew could have really felt like, um, you know, I was just treading water. But uh, and, and at times it did, to be honest, but it was two years well spent just building that motivation and studying and everything. Well, like, so I was pr- being proactive for selection rather than reactive when it come about. And that really helped me because I don't have the best memory. Uh, so it allowed me a lot of time to soak up a lot of the things that I, you know, was going to need from the air crew uh, on selection and, and then prepare for those. So. It was definitely well spent time. All right, you jump across, you do your loadmaster training. Can you just give us a, a quick synopsis of kind of where you ended up in terms of, of postings and, and touched on? And then I'm hoping to dive a little bit deeper into the, the actual all, all the different jobs you could possibly do as a as a loadie. Okay, uh, at the culmination of my course in September 2009, they needed a few few guys to. In, in op- the operation support troop at Oki, at the school, just because they they struggle to get bums on seats there and they really need a full crew when they're training brand new pilots uh, and also to occupy the other seat you know, in the back when they're training brand new air crew like myself when they're on, on their ab initio training. So that they were using us to, to be as qualified crew. Uh, we were new, so we were being watched accordingly, but we were qualified, so we were you know, able to be somewhat reliable and they could just, the instructors could just focus on their students and know that we weren't going to push, you know, allow the aircraft to go into a tree or something. So spent a lot of the time doing some very, uh, at the time it seemed boring training, but it, it in hindsight now knowing what I know, it was actually quite risky with uh, all new guys every day. Um, so I got a lot out of that and did a, some single air crewman training in the back. So we'd always operate as a crew of four in a, a crewed aircraft but at times you know you didn't have enough people in the back for the pilot training so yeah we would go out on our own and as a new crewy it's a lot of responsibility to cover both sides of the aircraft and all the other various jobs that we do so it was a really good exposure and grounding to learn my trade before I got to a unit I stayed there until 2000 the end of 2010 and the army came good on their deal that if I helped them out at Operation Support Troop, that they would send me back to Sydney as, as air crew, which was my ultimate goal. And yeah, in 2011, I posted back to Sydney. Well, then it was 6th Aviation Regiment. When I left, it was still a squadron. Yeah, and I posted into the same squadron under 6th Av and deployed immediately to Timor again. Yeah, this time for six months and, and got to fly. So that was really rewarding. Yep, no dramas. Okay, and after that? Uh, after that, it was in the Special Operations Air Crewman Pipeline. Six Aviation Regiment is obviously known for its direct support to Special Operations Command. And, yeah, they develop you as a, a crewman with your, your basic trade. Thankfully, I was able to, I wasn't too much of a burden on the unit with that because I'd done a little bit of time at the school after training and then deployed on operations straight away where you're just doing all your bread and butter sort of work. 
So that allowed me to a good grounding to then step into that other side of army. Yeah, which I you know is absolutely essential. You've you've got to know your your job and air mobile work before you can move into the other side. Because we didn't do a lot of that uh, in the unit. Five Ab with the specialist for that and was exceptionally good at that. We didn't we did very little work with that. So yeah, it was good to get that side. A little bit of that side before I stepped over and to the other side because that's where I ended up staying for uh, the remainder of my career um, with 171 and 173, uh, working my th- way through as an SO junior air crewman and then eventually as an air crewman instructor and an SO air crewman senior. So you give folks an idea in terms of, of how complex the operations would get. So. When you're when you're wearing everything and you're working as hard as you possibly can, what's mm-hmm. going on around you in terms of NBGs, gas masks, uh, formation, yeah. how many you know, uh, uh, aircraft full of um, people? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, things happen very quickly. Um, so yeah, having that grounding initially is absolutely you know paramount because um, your decision making sort of got to largely have happened before you know things happen. Yeah, so you'd be most of the work we we're doing was spent in in formation when we we're actually flying. You know, that was probably ten percent of the work, uh, and then ninety percent was was planning and waiting. Yeah, the the ten percent of the work when you're flying was was uh, all quite complex. Usually flying at a target very low and fast, with a lot of equipment strapped to you in a confined area, and you, your customers in the back, obviously at the 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 leading edge of, of their capability. So yeah, they really relied on us to, uh, you know, keep up, I suppose, uh, for lack of a better word. Yeah. yeah. Uh, fast, yeah. low, close form, very close formation, lots of equipment on goggles, gas masks, because they would carry various uh, tools that required us to be able to still do our job if anything happened in the back accidentally yep. or, you know, you were sitting over a target roping or repelling or, or firing and, your your rotors drew some of that up into the the cabin and cockpit. Yep. Yeah, that that made made things uh, a little a little complex. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, we're not going to cover details, but the the range of stuff yeah. the uh, the passengers carry is a, an amazing array of uh, of different things. And essentially, if you think of yeah. you know whatever movie you've seen with helicopters doing <laughs> funky stuff, it's uh, yeah. it's that sort of gear. But if we if we yeah. touch on the on the basics of a, of a load master's job. So you mentioned before, you know, okay. obviously giving clearances, looking after the passengers in the back. So <laughs> if we use that as a kicking off point, like what are, yeah. what are all the possible things you've done as a as a, a loadie in Army Aviation mm-hmm. in terms of weight and balance, like you, you name them. You, what, oh, what, have, yeah, what have you done? Yeah. Um, I guess I'll, I'll try and sort of work through it at, it's been a, a few years now, but I try and work through it in a bit of a logical sequence. So I try not to miss too much because uh, I know I'll have a few of my colleagues that are still doing the job or used to do the job will be, oh, you forgot all this and what about that? <laughs> um, yeah, so you're you're a bit of a jack of all trades, but absolutely not a master of any one of them because you just, you're stretched quite a lot. Uh, you have a lot of supporting people uh, touching the aircraft at various points leading up to uh, a training mission or a, a live mission. And you're the essentially most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, the point of contact for your aircraft. So you'd be assigned to a crew. You'll find out what time you're going, who you're flying with, what you're going to be doing. Make sure you studied up, just topped up on the things that you're going to do, so you know all your procedures and everything, and you can answer any questions and brief accordingly. 
uh, and you've got all the equipment and the aircraft repaired. So that's that's our job. Make sure the aircraft's fueled up accordingly. It's armed up accordingly, you know, with ammunition and, and firearms and uh, any role configuration equipment that is needed. We'd just be ensuring that the pilots, having already ordered that, that it, that it's all installed correctly and and as uh, we need for our position in whatever we're doing in the formation. So we'd just be keeping an eye on that, and then uh, let's see what else we'd be doing. We'd be drawing up uh, a weight and balance, a bit of a, a rough idea of how much we're going to weigh with whatever we're carrying, uh, so that the the pilots know how much power they're going to have on any given day in that configuration, and and a few contingency sort of you know scenarios. We would use told cards, takeoff and landing data cards, and that's what reflected the the crux of the information we were drawing out of the, the books. Yeah, depending on what you're doing, sometimes, you know, more green roll stuff, you'd be working out fuel flows when you're flying with extended range fuel tanks and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, you'd be working out your, your power required to be in OG hover, IG hover, if you could achieve either of those. The top of category takeoffs and landings that you would then be required to, to use according to our you know, power safety margins and passing that information on to the, the captain and uh, co-pilot. You'd, you'd be doing that through the flight as well. So you'd have that ready before takeoff and have it all checked, double-checked by um, your, your other crew buddy in the back. Yeah, then passing that on so the pilots knew that we were good to do what we needed to do. Uh, once we were getting out to the aircraft, then we would be involved with the... We'd do some dry run-throughs, a bit of static training on the, on the apron with any... Uh, shooters or customers we were we were flying with on the day, or, or other army personnel. We often fly with a lot of other people. You just give them a pack brief or external load hookup briefs, hoist briefs. You know, whatever you do, all the briefs. You brief the pilot on on you know the hoist emergency brief, book emergency brief. Make sure your cable cut authorities all you know nailed down, uh, so that if something happened, you could respond quite quickly as a team. Uh, and then you get in the aircraft and assist the pilots in, you know, just, just monitoring engines and systems as they're, they're booting them up to make sure everything's doing what they're meant to do and you know, not throwing sparks anywhere. You get in and off you fly, and from there we would essentially provide clearances and be responsible for passenger and cargo safety and uh, restraint in the back. External load pickup and release, load monitoring in flight, assisting the pilot to deal with in-flight emergencies to do with, with loads, external loads, and all of what I just mentioned uh, with regards to hoisting operations as well. So deploying and recovering personnel by the, the rescue hoist and sometimes equipment as well. And then, yeah, when we would come back, we'd go and do the job. And then we, So we'd also provide clearances where that was our bread and butter, so from obstacles and other aircraft and formation or just other traffic flying around. You monitor, help monitor some radios, identify you know, your nav aids at times, particularly for instrument flying and approaches. You could assist the pilots with a bit of communication because uh, we'd have a bit more brain space in the back at times to send out some calls and, and monitor other frequencies while they were task-focused. I guess then it was just ensuring the aircraft was packed up correctly and put to bed and ready to go for the next job when you come back. Well, and as well as providing, you know, your security to the aircraft. So personal security to the aircraft by manning uh, 
heavy machine guns and uh, also being able to operate the flare and char. Yeah. The other one is quite often the the loadmaster is going to be the one when you land somewhere you need to interface with herbs Mm -hmm. on the ground. It's going to be the loadmaster who jumps out and goes and actually communicates with whoever it is. And there's a a lot of responsibility in that because – you know, you've pretty much got to know whatever the mission is backwards so that when you're going talking with the other people out there because you're yeah. most of the time you're off comms at that point and so you're talking yeah. on behalf of the aircraft captain and making decisions while you're out there. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that one, but, yeah, particularly that, that could get challenging because whenever there was an aircraft around, people get excited and of all ranks and, yeah, you're you're essentially speaking with the aircraft captain's authority even though you might be a digger uh, or a corporal, yeah, and that's that's a lot of responsibility for for a loadie, particularly early on. Yeah, so knowing where it's appropriate to be assertive, particularly with people that at times highly outrank you. Whenever you're around, you know, assisting other units, you're generally not interfacing with too many people of the same rank because everyone wanted to be near helicopters and responsible for what was happening. So, yeah, you'd. Sometimes you find yourself butting heads as a digger or a corporal uh, or sergeant with half colonel or full colonel. Things could get uh, heated and interesting, and sometimes you'd invite them into the aircraft to be on comms for a chat. And uh, yeah, we 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 worked we worked very closely with our our pilots and had a lot of trust given you know afforded to us by the pilots. So if ever that happened, uh, anyone who was invited in quickly left with a bit of a smack on the nose from the from the captains. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the other thing, in the front, like, you know, we do DG aware courses and up, front, up you yeah. know, refresh and stuff. So we kind of have a, a rough understanding. But you guys are essentially the experts. Again, loading all kinds of things in. That's another really yep. specialty area uh, for the loadmaster. Yeah, that is. It's a minefield, the uh, dangerous goods, particularly pack except air qualification, is is a bloody minefield, and it's there's a lot of information required. And it's difficult. I think a large portion of your job as a, a crewy or loadie is to know how much information you need to know on the top of your head, and how much you just you know all the rest. You know where to be able to find it very quickly. That was a very particularly difficult thing to do with DG because it's just so diverse with the different units you'd be supporting. Or, I mean, you could be on flood relief and people would just get in and out with anything and, you know, animals and <laughs> livestock at times and feed and pyrotechnics and you know, ammunition and not everyone's trained, to, you know, with an understanding of what's appropriate or, or how to handle it or how to se- segregate it, how you can mix things or not mix things and accepted quantities. Yeah, that, that that was a difficult qualification to maintain. Yeah, I just remember like it's fuel or generators or types of batteries, like you literally yeah. carrying, especially as you said, like you know, flood relief type things. But on yeah. operations, there's all kinds of stuff that has to get moved. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> there's there some much smarter people than I that worked out some simpler ways of dealing with those sorts of routine taskings that quite often turn non-routine with the things you'd pick up but yeah uh, looking back now it, it was a, it was a headache <laughs> and and each item like you carry a piece of machinery regularly or tradies tools for the aircraft and you just be handed a toolbox that was sealed and locked and sometimes <laughs> the guys wouldn't have the key and 
like, what's it? And I'm like, well, tools. And you know, okay, you get to the other, wait a ton, you get to the other end and yeah, you see him open it up. You're like, oh, there's some oil in there and some hydraulic fluid there. And okay. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting. That's for sure. There's a, a creative art to it as well as fitting things in. You know, we've been times before where you can imagine you know, a Blackhawk bulking out where it wasn't so much a weight issue. It's just physically could not <laughs> fit another box in. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm amazed. There's a, a certain degree of, of creativity that uh, comes with being a lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had a few sayings. You keep ratcheting to smell toothpaste. <laughs> um, but yeah, you'd, you'd certainly be taught to uh, or you'd be expected to raise your, your Tetris skills, that's for sure. But it's one of the few medium lift helicopters where you can just keep filling it, you know, fill the space and you've at times still got the power to lift more, but you just don't have the space and that's incredible. So yeah, you'd, but because you'd be doing that all the while, well, keeping the basic principles of your weight and balance and where your moment is and where your heavier items are in regards to the moment of, you know, the aircraft and, you know, then you've got to deal with your load spreader requirements. Yeah. So things have got to, they might be quite heavy and too heavy for the the impact on the square inches or footage of the floor and then you've got to you got to get creative yeah uh, but that was fun that was definitely a fun part of it so yeah if you're listening i think yeah we can take away is that uh yeah like any job there's definitely times of of downtime and boring and waiting but a mm. yeah an air crew member a, a loadie in a, a military role has a a, a lot to do because essentially once the helicopter's going the the pilots in the yeah. front aren't really getting in and doing much while it's operating the, so anything that helicopter actually does as opposed to you know fly from a to b or maneuver is mm. controlled and essentially done by the load masters in the back so it's uh mm. it's an awesome job it is yeah it's I mean, because of the, the diversity in it and, and the detail in each of the, the diverse tasks, it, it takes a while to learn your job. And, I, yeah, I considered it a success if I was average at, at as many of those as I could be because it was, it, it, it was very fun because of the diversity, but it was very, very challenging, yeah. So uh, I went from doing some of those things to – being at home with uh, two small children and uh, you know feeding out of a, a, a spoon with a you know baby jar of food and things, so it was a bit of a change <laughs> to, to kind of get my head around. Been an adjustment. Yeah, but you did something similar. So you you did a couple of years of, of this, essentially operating uh-huh. as as high as you possibly can professionally in in that sort of role, and and then you mm-hmm. took a break. Uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. what what was that like going from that sort of environment out to a Remote cattle station. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it was the same kind of adjustment. Uh, yeah, you know, like quite an adjustment that you had. That sounds like it, it could have taken a little bit of uh, work to slow yourself down. You know, the pace would have just been the change in pace would have been crazy. Um, on my end, uh, yeah, at times it, it was quite slow, but you had the ability out there on, on large cattle stations. You work in very small teams, like you do in the army. Uh, so you really rely on each other a lot. And by that point, I was probably one of the oldest ringers in the camp at, you know, in my mid twenties, which is just phenomenal because when I started out there, all the, all the stockmen, you know, head stockmen were in their thirties and forties. So it, it just in that short period of time, that environment had really changed. And I found myself in a position where I was looking to step back from 
you know, any leadership and just, uh, I guess it was a bit of a soul search. Uh, I was very burnt out and been dealing with some personal issues that had sort of come to a head. And I, I got to a point where I just, I felt I, I couldn't, I couldn't do the job justice and keep my finger on the pulse at the level that I felt that it deserved to do, to be safe and to keep my mates safe. Uh, and I needed to go and deal with, sort my life out effectively so that if I was ever going to go back, I could do it at the level that I felt that I was doing it justice. See, I, I moved out west and was looking for a bit of, I guess, a, a drop in responsibility and ended up finding myself one of the oldest in the camp. And yeah, reluctantly was a bit of a, a go-to guy for some of the younger younger people because just of you know that organic life experience, uh, which was really good because I could it stretched me in ways that I I needed to to grow. But it also allowed me time to just be quiet and escape the noise. So much noise in that lifestyle, it's difficult to have a healthy perspective on. Just life outside, you know, you you are absolutely giving everything of yourself to it, uh, and it's very difficult to have a personal life. So relationships weren't working for me because I was just always away, and then you're always, you know, just moving. I guess you can't sit still. You live in a bit of a bubble too, because you just mm. you live with those people, and when you're not at work, yeah. you then go out to the pub with them, and so it's just. It's just a really mm. small bubble. Yeah, yeah. So going out west was very, you know, very um, therapeutic in a lot of different ways because I could escape a lot of that noise and it was just quiet everywhere. But don't get me wrong, there's a lot of action out there with some wild animals. Yeah, I was up in the Territory initially for a couple of months and then I transferred down to the Channel Country and on in the edge of the Diamantina, and the, sorry, the Simpson Desert and... It's a beautiful part of the world, but um, it's very unforgiving. Big snakes, wild wild animals, you know, camels, um, grub balls. Uh, up north, there were buffalo, and you'd be, you know, you have crocs to think about as well. A lot of the cattle, even the domestic cattle, are very wild and not used to being handled. So, yeah, you, you could have a bit of fun and, and scratch the adrenaline itch when you needed to. But then you you had the benefit of the other side of it where you could just, you know, you'd finish and you'd ride that high down and just be quiet. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of good in that that I was missing from my, you know, my time at the, at the unit. Did you ever look at the helicopter mustering and think that was something you might be interested in? <laughs> I did actually. I, I left without the intention of coming back uh, from the army. And I mean, I had exposure out west before. It was like going home. So that also helped with the transition, even though it wasn't where I grew up. Uh, be around those sorts, sorts of people, uh, and, and I'd actually I'd flown in 22s and 44s and done a little bit of feral animal culling out of them before I enlisted. It's funny how things work out. I never joined the dots. That's where I'd started my um, exposure with aircraft, I suppose, and then ended up doing something very, very similar, but at a, in a very different way at a high level. So it's funny how life just sort of works in circles like that, and sometimes you don't you don't even realise it's happening. But yeah, I went out with the intention of uh, I'll, I'll do some time in the stock camp again, and maybe I work towards flying. And there was just there were too many accidents happening out there when I was out there again. You know, people, good operators crashing aircraft, 
I won't, I won't go into the minefield of, of that. It's a, it's a very different type of flying and it takes a lot of risk uh, and, and very fast reflexes and knowing your machine very well and your your environment around you at all times. But, yeah, that wasn't for me. <laughs> After flying in you know, very powerful multi-engine uh, aircraft with the most experienced guys you know, money could buy, I think I'd had a, a good dose of reality and, and risk by that point and respected the, the risks. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't to be anyway. I, I got interrupted out there by opportunity knocking on my door. Strangely enough, in the middle of, you know, the Simpson Desert, you don't expect that to happen. Yeah, and I ended up coming back. But that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the plan at all. All right, well, I don't want to, you know, you've got so many years of experience here. I don't want to fast forward through, through too much of it. But I guess it'd be good to come closer to the, to the current day with the, the CV and the HEMS work. Was there, was there anything uh-huh. in that period there between going back in the Army, getting back up to speed, and then moving across into the ambulance sort of role that you thought would be worthwhile kind of drawing out or would be different to other people's experience? Um, I just, I guess the, the one thing that I got out of that following two years when I went back before I crossed over to, to Toll and doing HEMS work, I went back to full-time instructing uh, ab initio guys and I found that really rewarding. It's, it, it's very challenging at times, but I think it uh, it certainly makes you honest with the grassroots of your trade. You, know, you, have, to, you have to put all the sexy work aside and be very, very good at understanding and explaining uh, in different ways for different people because we all learn differently the very grassroots sort of skills that you learn as a air crewman. And I didn't think that I would find that as rewarding as I did. Watching people come through and understanding the hardship from the other side and there was a there's a bit of a culture at times with, you know, some instructional technique. It was very, very good, but it there was just there was definitely a culture that developed over time where that hardship was expected and people found their own way through it. Whereas um, I know I, I drew a lot of enjoyment and self-worth out of trying to minimize that because it's difficult enough. It, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be made any harder at all. Yeah. So just you know, learning different people and how, how people think and, and need to learn differently. There's, there's a few sort of key ways that people learn. And once you understand, and very few people know that when they come into the course. So, Understanding that as an instructor, so you can tailor that training to individuals because the courses are all quite small and have a high attrition rate before they get there and then through the course. You could really help good guys that you knew are going to be, and girls that are going to be a real asset to the units, um, get there by themselves by just trying to explain things in a different way that suited them. That, you know, I drew a lot of a lot of purpose and enjoyment out of that. Yeah, it's not for everyone. It's a you have to have a certain personality mm. for it, and yeah. especially in that position because you, you've almost got two customers. It's a little bit easier maybe on, on you know being a, a civil flight instructor to be sort of you know someone's paying you to try mm. and get into a course, but you had two jobs there. One was obviously to train the people coming through the course, but then yeah. there was a like a greater responsibility of making sure that the the right people got through or the people who got through would be, you know, an asset and not a, a liability for the units they went to. Absolutely. Uh, so while I was doing this, I was still 
I'd requaled as an SOA crewman again and was still just when the unit, I belonged to Avon TC, the school, but we were we were positioned at Holsworthy. So I was around all my old colleagues and, you know, doing all the same tricks, uh, but a little bit, you know, much less involved because my day-to-day job was in Abinitio training first and foremost. But when they needed bums in seats on the job, uh, I was still able to do that. So you're still very much in touch with what the units or what that unit in particular uh, needs uh, of its people in terms of the type of people and the level of responsibility and trust. So that it was a constant reminder. You weren't removed from a unit at all while you were teaching these people. And that, that kept you quite accountable because of a morning you might be flying with two or three, two or three, um, you know, students, Abinitio students. And then that night, you know, early that night, you might be on, on an SO training sortie doing the job and seeing, I, I guess, yeah, you, you're still tapped in, and it, it was a constant reminder that we we needed the best guys and, and girls. That yeah, and, and and we needed to prepare them the best we could, not just get them through. We needed to prepare them the best we could so that they're an asset to the unit as soon as possible. Because there's not a lot of us. It's a small trade, and you either know most people, or you you know of them through someone else, or ever dealt with them. Um, yeah. All right, so let's jump the fence now, and mm-hmm. you're now being trained up in the ambulance role. What was the the eye-opening things there that kind of surprised you in terms of, because, you know, you've been doing this job for a, a long time now, and you're training others. What were the things that were the most different in transitioning across into a, I guess, a, a rescue or, or an ambulance operation? Um, I, Because I'd had good friends who crossed over for me. I was fortunate enough, in some ways I was fortunate enough, to know that the role had a few of the, the basics were very similar, but there was a lot that was very different. So, yeah, that, that was a good thing and also a bad thing because uh, I knew you were heavily involved with, you know, assisting the pilot with instrument flying. And as an army crew, you have nothing to do with that other than identifying nav aids, which... Isn't very, you know. I mean, it's it's all helpful, but it's not a lot of responsibility, or it, it doesn't. It's not a lot of understanding, and that's a whole other type of flying that you're just not exposed to because you don't need to be. There's two pilots, but in the hem side, it's it's all single pilot IFR, so they, they can do it on their own. But you're up front a lot of the time, and you need to be an asset in any way you can as a crewy, regardless of what whether you're in SAR or HEMS or in the army or the navy or firework, you know, all, all the various roles, pilot transfer sort of work. You, you need to, you really need to make yourself useful in as many different ways as possible, and and an asset. I think that culture carries across right through the trade and all the different applications of, of being a crew. Yeah, that it goes as, you know, it comes as no surprise that then you're going to be involved with that sort of thing, and and quite often. So that was very intimidating. That was really the most intimidating thing for me. Yeah, just under getting my head around instrument plates and some of the basic rules. You know, you're not expected to be up there with the same level of knowledge as the pilots because that's not our job. It's a, it's a part of our job. But yeah, you, there's still a bit you need to learn. But the company was very good at preparing you and training you with that. So that took a lot of that sort of intimidation away, I guess. 
But the other thing that I found, you know, challenging and was, was you know, you're working again. You, you, I'd come from the unit where you're working with some really experienced guys. Not to take away from any of the non-SO units, they're all very experienced and very capable. But there's just there's something extra required of you to support the the guy the customers that we had. Then you come across to what we're doing, and it was absolutely no different uh, with the paramedics. These are the best paramedics the country's got, and, and doctors that the, the the country's got. They are trained to an, such a high level, and they're they're very humble, tight knit group of guys so it's it's a it's not the same but it's it, it, the the two capabilities that have a, they draw a lot of similarities and require a lot of the similar similar things from a crewy so yeah you know, you've got to be confident you've got to be you know confident in yourself and your abilities so that you know your job and the rules and what you can and can't do because sometimes you'll be asked uh, you know can we do this or can we do that uh, because it's such a Every job you go to is different and it evolves very, very quickly in front of you. And usually it plays out in front of a lot of cameras. Everyone's a journalist now. Everyone's got a, a camera and things are uploaded very quickly. So as if it wasn't already important enough that you knew your job well, you're absolutely held accountable in every way you know, possible now. Yeah, so you had to be very confident in what you could and couldn't do and understand how the rope that you're given, that the leeway you're given to be able to be, you know, exercise some creativity inside that left and right of art. Can um, you just touch on, yeah. on the aircraft? Because I guess HEMS vary yeah. everything from a 407 or a you know, squirrel doing hospital transfers yeah. and that sort of stuff. But, yeah. like, the, these helicopters you're flying are probably, I don't know, is there helicopters in the world which are, are fitted out better or what's the... Uh, where they sit in terms um, of fit out. So we operate the Leonardo Augusta Westland 139 and a very, very capable aircraft, very well designed for this sort of capability. And it seems to be the, the aircraft of choice across the globe. While there are others, it seems to be today's aircraft of choice for this capability. As far as I'm aware, um, yeah, I have a lot of in- interest in following that sort of thing, but I'm certainly by no means an authority on the subject. No, I was, I was getting more at like the, yeah. the fit out, like the custom fit out in the back. Oh, like, oh right, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, there are a lot of uh, proponents for it. There are a lot of people that uh, feel very strongly that the, the setup's great and some some don't, but coming from this is the first Hems aircraft setup, you know, aircraft and setup that I've experienced through, operated with outside the Army, I think it's exceptionally good. Like any setup, it has its pros and cons. But I, if money wasn't an option, I, I think you would still end up with some things that you would rather change. Broadly speaking, though, I think it's exceptionally well set up. So we don't do a lot of lifting anymore on our backs, which is really good because anyone knows anything that knows anything about uh, air crewmen or loadmasters, they know our necks and back, backs and shoulders are usually in pretty bad shape by the time you get to my point in, in your career. So, yeah, the, just the fact that you're not lifting a lot of heavy things now. You, know, you do plenty of lifting, but you don't need to lift patients in or out. That's all done by an arm. And a fit-out in the back is just like a – I mean, it's a – It's like a full ambulance, though, isn't it? Like you'd have as much stuff, oh, if yeah. not more than what would be in a, a roadside well, ambulance? 
Yeah, so they can do all the same things, a lot of the same things that the road ambulances can do, but then they do a lot more. So you, you will carry equipment for them to do specialist sort of procedures that most, not all, but most paramedics on the road just don't do. Yeah, so we carry critical care paramedics, and they do. Uh, they're a critical care paramedic, and they're also uh, either a, a, a SCADI, Special Casualty Access Team. Uh, they don't train those anymore. They, they've changed the name, and uh, they're called a, a RAC or Remote Area Access Course. They do helicopter search and extraction specialist training, and they're also trained for uh, they can rope and repel into patients, and then extract them by rope and various other means with you know, in conjunction with other rescue agencies. So they're very, very highly trained physically and with their physical skills and with the aircraft, but they're also trained to a higher level. Well, yeah, to a, absolutely to a higher level and with more capabilities for, for uh, medical, more invasive medical procedures than what most of your uh, paramedics on the road uh, are. Yeah. So they can, they can administer certain drugs that wouldn't be administered by just your, your normal paramedic and yeah, do, do more invasive things like that. They'll do rapid sequence intubations on patients if, if it's needed, stick fingers through people's chests when it's required. You know, they, they do all kinds of crazy and cool things. Uh, That'd be a hell of an education just yeah. in itself. Like, also you're not super invested in that side because you've got a, a different job, but just being around all this mm. stuff all the time would be uh, amazing. Yeah, like these individuals are incredible, absolutely incredible. The pilots that get us into where we, we need to go and some of the sticky tight places, no place is the same. So it's a lot like the SO side. That's challenging in itself and there's wires and stuff everywhere. But then the guys in the back, like second to none, they're not there to replace the road paramedics by any stretch. There's a place for everyone, but they enhance what the road paramedics already do and they do a very, very good job at that. Uh, this, there's, the weight of the world is on them and everyone's watching when they do their job and they're exceptionally good at it. They take a lot of pride in being very, very good at it. Yeah, and being, getting to work with exceptional people in the front and back like that, you can't help but want to rise to try and stay, be useful and be relevant. Uh, so you're always looking as a crewy to, to how do I support them better? How do I support the pilot better so that the guys in the back can do their job? Uh, and then how do I support the guys in the back? Because a lot of the time, once the aircraft's set up and you've done everything you need to do on scene, sometimes if you're comfortable, there's never any pressure, but if you're comfortable, a lot of them get you quite involved with helping manage a patient. Very basic, very supervised things, but that can be quite confronting because um, everything they do is, is uh, very time critical and sometimes very invasive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll let the uh, imagination uh, wander on, yeah. on that one. All right. Yeah. So, so I mean, you're supporting. I could, I, could, I, I could try to go into more detail, but I, I don't have the medical background to explain <laughs> it any better than that. Yeah. So That's right. You, There's you probably people that are having breakfast. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you're supporting, you know, these incredible people. Uh, doing fantastic stuff for the community, a couple of years in Sydney, and then you move out towards uh, Orange area. If we just talk about the like this year, uh, I, I guess there's been, you know, floods and all kinds of things and, and you know, bushfires in, in Australia. So there's been a, a whole range of tasking in the last couple of years. But uh, leading up the last couple of weeks, you know, the predominant thing has been been flooding. What's it been like mm. in, the, in the, I guess, the greater Orange 
region and, and what sort of tasking have you been involved in for those things? Uh, of particular note, the flooding, we've been covering a lot of, we seem to have been stretched quite a lot at the Orange Base up northwest, far northwest. So we're still covering our area, but uh, I mean, northwest is, is you know, all Westpac region, but I mean, the lines are blurred. We all support each other regardless of what color aircraft you're in. It's all for ambulance. So we've, we've spent a lot of time up there in Colorado by Lightning Ridge, Moree, and everywhere south of there, right down through that, that sort of region. And, and the amount of devastation is just incredible. I mean, so I've you been, pulling people been, out of, you know, taking people through? It's like, what, what's the, the sort of task? Um, not so much because it seemed to be slower moving and just standing water. So we, more recently, we've been stood up and equipped to, to deal with that a little bit more specifically, but it's more been all these towns, they're a long way from anything, and a lot of their, their people are bought or, or transferred further east to higher tier medical facilities by road or fixed wing. And a lot of these towns have been cut off from their own airports just because of standing water that's taking forever to, to drop. You know, the landscape's soaked and there's nowhere for the water to go, so they're just cut off. So, I mean, it's been very weird. You go out there and you're lucky to see another aircraft a lot of the time, but it's been flat out with a lot of other smaller aircraft bringing supplies in and and, and then flying out and doing flight surveys. And and that's been, you know, that that gets quite busy when you're already rushing to get somewhere to pick someone up urgently. But it's been a lot of picking up that that slack of, you know, that the road guys can't do because they're cut off. They just can't get them out of town or even to the airport for a fixed wing to get them. So covering all of our normal work plus that, yeah, it's really up their workload and the guys are putting in a lot of overtime. In your little notes that you sent through, because I tried to get a you know an idea of, of what you were doing, you made a, a comment there, especially in the work you've been in the last couple of years in the, in the ambulance role or HIMS role, is that you're dealing with people like on, on the most difficult days of, of their life. Uh, in terms of you know injury or, or loved ones or those sorts of things, yeah. Obviously, I, I guess the gist of this is that you were then affected with your house in in the township uh, there. So, how how did that unfold? Were you on task and were getting calls from family, or were you at home and you knew flood uh, water was coming? What was the how, how did it sort of unfold for you? Yeah, I was on night shift and my we do a rolling roster of two days, two nights, and four off, and I was on my last night night shift at work and I was up late because we were getting torrential rain and our creek system going through Yugao was already we'd been flooded for six to eight weeks you know we could get in and out we weren't affected that way but uh the releasing so much water was being released out of Wangla that the Mandadjuri Creek couldn't discharge you know at a rate to keep it safe into the Lachlan River so I was I was a bit nervous there for for a little while, just for the sheer amount of water we were getting, still falling, and all of that was happening because uh, you, you're at a real risk of something awful happening. But I mean, even still, like none of the records show, you know, for Yugara, show where I live, show the, the type of event that's just happened that we're, we're still dealing with. Uh, but yeah, I, nonetheless, I was I was nervous because you're away from your family, and for me, I travel an hour and fifteen to work, so and there's the 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 creek system that, you know, where, where our devastation sort of came from follows the road. 
that I take to work for a large portion of the way. So there's a lot of low points and vulnerable areas of that stretch of road that if it bursts its banks, it's got to come up a fair way. But if it bursts its banks, you know, there's a risk that you're going to be cut off from your family. And you know, I was naturally worried about that. So I wasn't sleeping too good this particular night. Uh, and I was just starting to settle down for the night. And uh, my one of my farming neighbours up the hill from me, we live on the foothills of the Nangar National Park, sort of between it and the Nandadri Creek on the outskirts of Yagara on the orange side. He gave me a call and he, he was further on his parents' place, further up the hill, and said there's a wall of water heading down the hill and my father hasn't seen it this high since you know, the 50s and it came close to the house that you know we now own back then. Uh, they, there wasn't any flood damage or anything. But, that, I mean, that's an unheard, otherwise unheard of event. I'd never heard of water coming out of the hills at, at the way the way that he was talking uh, before. So something must have, you know, captured water up there and then given for that to, to have happened, surely. I'm still, I'm still not too sure about that. But, um, yeah, so that, that event happened. I said, well, I said, do I need to head home? And he said, give me 10 minutes. So I woke up the wife and she was at home with her three- and four-year-old, woke her up and said, look, I don't know what's happening, but something's happening. There's a lot of water coming out of the hills. Just have the car pack ready to go. And, you know, you, the only way out, we got a stock route one way that was uphill, which was bogged, so she wasn't getting through there in the car. And downhill, you're going towards the creek, you know, to get to the main road. You obviously don't want to go downhill towards the creek if it, there's any flooding. So I just said, if you need to, get to a hay paddock, you know, our, our, sorry, a hay shed in the top paddock. Not a lot higher, but it's the highest you can get. Um, that sort of the water then came up to, ended up coming up to the, the front door of the house. A neighbor, the neighbor that warned me came around and got my wife sandbagged the doors. And then it receded and it all seemed to calm down. But by that point, I was, I wasn't sleeping. I needed to get home because I was worried about not, you know, being. Yes, yeah, this is still family. like the middle of the night yeah. type thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is just before two o'clock by this point. So I'd, I held on as long as I could. You don't want to wake up your crew. And we're up and down through the night as it is. So a lot of them sleep quite quite light and have um, you know trouble sleeping. So you want to ensure that you need to wake people up before you do at work. I just made a decision. I'm like, I, I have to get home. So if I'm wrong and they don't need me there, at least I know that the family's all right. It's not like, you know something that you do very often. So I made the call and spoke to the pilot. We took the aircraft offline. I rushed home. I didn't, I didn't get home. I got probably halfway home and there were road closures everywhere. And the first I knew that it was a serious, going to be as serious as it was, was I got to Cadell, sort of the halfway point, a small village on the way home on the escort way. And there's a, there's a bridge that, you know, where the main road crosses through the western side of town. The bridge goes over it. Uh, normally has platypus in it. It's that calm and clear. It's, you could, you could almost jump over it. It's that small. It was a raging torrent about 400 metres wide, about 20 metres, 15 to 20 metres over that bridge, maybe maybe a touch less, but it looked like it was way over the bridge. And I couldn't see how the bridge would still be standing underneath it. There were 40-foot shipping containers and tractors being flicked around like pieces of Lego oh, wow. in a sink. You know? uh, it was, I'd only seen, I hadn't seen things like that in Australia. I'd only seen water moving like that in Timor, Papua New Guinea. Yeah, so I was stuck there for a while for so probably three or four hours at least, and it was still dark. And you got, so fo- I, so you got phone reception and that sort of stuff? Or? Well, very 
very poor. So I just got to high ground. I got to the highest part of Cadell. I knew, you know, there was a, a camp draft ground I'm very familiar with. I, I drove up there and miraculously there was no one there. At this point, a lot of homes and businesses were being lost in Cadell when I drove into town. So I got up there and just so I could have mobile coverage because all of this was heading towards Yagera. But I mean, I still, by that point, thought, I mean, this is crazy that it's not going to have that energy by the time it gets there, surely. So yeah, I was on the phone with my wife, Lauren, every couple of minutes. Was a nervous wreck. Two little kids at home and a lot of livestock, and you know, and I couldn't get to them. So, there's a, there's a, you know, quite honestly, there was, there was a bit, bit of guilt there. Um, I've got to find, still find somewhere dealing with. You know, your, your job is to be at home and to, to look after your family, and you're not able to do that. And you know, no one else is in a position to do that either, because everyone would be struggling. It's a really vulnerable position to be in, um, yeah. you know, especially, especially on the other side. You're used to being you know, part of the team that comes in and grabs control of things and slows everything down and you know, is removed somewhat so that you can have that perspective to control the environment a little bit more. And um, You always come in quite calm. You know, think, things might get hectic, but it's, you're always showing up as a calm face, which is also important for people. So being on the other side of it and you're completely powerless and out of control, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty scary. So yeah, and then at some point, I think it was just after nine. My wife, you know, to cut a long story short, my wife and neighbour who was visiting was just looking around at all the water, playing around, and while they're having a cup of coffee at our front gate, the kids were playing in the yard. One of my kids was playing in the yard while I was asleep. They saw just a, a line of something shiny on the horizon coming from the orange direction of the highway across all the farmland, as far as they could see, left and right. Climbed up on the gate and shortly realised that it was a wall of water as the Mandadjuri Creek was bursting its banks and it was running quick. Uh, it was probably almost a kilometre away from them by the time they realised it. At, well, at the time they realised it, by the time my wife woke up my daughter and got my daughter and my son in the car and let the dogs, the working dogs out of their cages, they were driving out in water that was quickly rising and it had a lot of, you know, had a very strong current. They got out and got up to the hay shed, fortunately, with my neighbor's daughter. We joined them shortly after, and my my neighbor didn't didn't make it. She got, uh, at that time, you know, she she uh, got swept into our cattle yards, which meant she got pushed over a, a lot of fences. I don't, I don't know how she is, how she's alive, or, you know, even at least really severely injured. Uh, but she got swept in the cattle yard. So she was just I, on her feet type thing. So it wasn't on a car and she was just basically being picked up and, and just taken by herself. She was just picked up and pushed over fences as they were flattened and, you know, down into sort of the main flow, which was right through our place by that point. 1,400 millimetres of water uh, with a lot of force was passing through our property and we were right on the edge of it. The town ended up being right in the centre of it shortly after it hit our place. She was swept in the cattle yard. I was able to speak to her briefly on the phone while she was, you know, naturally in complete and utter fear for her life because she couldn't hold on. It was too strong. The phone went dead. I called Lauren again. And then they saw her. She was standing there with, you know, my neighbor's daughter and they saw her uh, get swept away through our paddocks. She had swept over a bunch of uh, no less than half a dozen fences that day, all cattle fences with barbed wire and hinge you know, hinge wire, which killed a lot of, well, all of our lambs from this year and a lot of our sheep. 
and somehow she was able to get into Karma Flow and swim clear of it. She made her way into town, found some clothes because she lost some of the clothes and just started helping everyone as the crisis was unfolding. So, <laughs> That's unreal. Oh, there's, there's, some, there's, there's so many stories in this town right now of just normal people doing absolutely abnormal, exceptional things to help out just their fellow man uh, right after surviving an absolutely horrific event with, with no time to process it. So I've seen um, photos yeah. of, of your place, obviously now that the water's gone down. So mm. the, the, the water level is up, you know, I guess shoulder high all through the house. But what mm. I, I kind of mm. did understand until you kind of spoke about the, the force of the water moving through and just that it was like, a, you know, that, that fast is mm. uh, like around the pillars or trees, are, like just how much brush and weeds and oh, things had, yeah. had been basically deposited on anything that was vertical. So there must have just yeah. been so much stuff in that water. Well, yeah, we, we live in uh, quite a big cropping belt and I mean a lot of the, the farmers around us have been waiting to you know, for a dry spell to harvest their canola for quite some time. Uh, so all of that got ripped out that was in its path and just deposited over the entire town, including our property, which creates its own issue because it's all, you know, like diesel tanks and oil tanks all leak through it and it's, um, and then you get septic water mixing with water. Yeah, it's, 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 actually, it's pretty, you, you look at it and it just looks like canola, you start burning it and it's absolutely putrid and it's on top of everything. And then the mozzies that come with it when you're clearing it are just phenomenal. You know, we're going to have a, you know, Japanese encephalitis or malaria issue next. It's, so to back up then, so this water's going through, your mm-hmm. your wife and your two kids basically evacuate yep. the house. So they head back up to the, the higher paddock, do they? Uh, yeah, so they, they got up to the highest point in the property at our hay shed, which isn't a lot higher, but it's high enough. Uh, the water was rising, just kept rising right through the place up towards them. And she was, she had me on FaceTime so I could see it and, and see my kids and, and, and her and talk to them and just spend as much time as I could with them because we, we were saying our goodbyes and our prayers because we thought that was it. So it was a really emotional time. It was, it was pretty tough. I mean, how, how do you, what's your family, you know, on, on, on a screen and trying to have some kind of, like just make the most of what time you've got with them yeah. before you think they're going to be swept away in front of you, you know, um, because that's what happened with Rose. You know, my neighbour while we were on the phone, I, I thought that, that that was exactly what was going to happen because the water just kept coming up and I could see it through watching on her phone. Uh, and, I mean, all, all the while she's on the other end trying to keep our kids calm, trying to remain calm, you know, when we didn't know whether it was going to be okay and she's watching the neighbour getting swept away while the daughter, 20-year-old daughter's next to her trying to comfort her and... There's screaming and animals, you know, screaming and all kinds of noises as buildings are giving way. They shifted on their found some, you know, buildings in town shifted on their foundations and moved, you know, a street away, you know, a couple hundred meters. Yeah, I mean, all our all our life was just being ripped apart and swept through town, including all our animals and our lambs that were only a couple of weeks old. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was horrific. And so, did the water hang around, or once it, it it moved through and then sort of dropped again? What was the like? How did it progress? Um, it through the rest of the day. Once it, it, it peaked, probably I think fifty 
somewhere between 15 and 100 metres from where they were on our side and then took the rest of the day to drop effectively for people to get around uh, and, and right into that night to really open up other areas of the town. Um, yeah, so it was pretty quick uh, considering so, the amount of water that was in there. Yeah. So when could you get back? So you were saying you were 9 o'clock in the morning there stuck on the other side mm-hmm. of that, that first creek. Mm-hmm. So I was moving from um, water obstacle to water obstacle across the highway for that whole day. As soon as that bridge came down, well, not as soon as I wanted the amount of water that went over that, I was shocked. I'm still shocked that it's standing. So I waited till I saw plenty of other people using it before I drove over it. Uh, it still wasn't, you know, I, I don't know if it is now cleared by an engineer for us to be using, but um, you know, you, you're not ha- hanging around forever to find out you got to go. So. I waited for a little while once it was clear and I saw a lot of heavier vehicles crossing it. Then I crossed it uh, and then pushed right through and as far as I could. And I just get to a point where there's a kilometre of water over the road, as far as you can see almost. And um, then I'm measuring the water as it's going down because you you got nothing to do but wait. There's nothing you can do. And you got to do something to keep your mind occupied. Otherwise, you're getting mad. So I was, every 10 minutes, I was putting rock out on the road on the edge of the water to, to measure it going down. I'm trying to remember equations from my crewy training and how does it work? Speed equals distance over time. Or how was the equation again? It's been that long. And trying to work out then just to keep my mind busy on other things to, to work out the rate that it was going. And I think I estimated it was, it was averaging going down where I was at about 0.64 of a metre every minute. Sometimes more, sometimes a lot less, but that was the average. So that's pretty quick, really. You, you could watch it go down in front of you, but there's just so much of it around on the water, on the road, and you, it was all muddy, so you couldn't see through to see that the road was safe underneath. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to do was have my family survive it and me then you know, push a bit quicker than I should have done. And cause you know, you, you can't enter flood water. We've been flying over people, you know, trucks and everything, driving through flood water and responding to families with kids and the worst sort of things happening, you know, not everyone getting out. That's very fresh in my mind with a lot of things, but particularly on that day, it was, you know, the risk. So trying to get there as soon as you could, but don't do anything stupid. You got to, you got to take it slow and methodical and wait. I ended up having a lot of emergency services that were deploying by road, catch up to where I was because I pushed through early and these guys are coming from all over the place. They had a bit further to come. (laughs) <laughs> they show up at the edge of the water on the highway and I'm walking along with a pile of rocks in my helicopter uniform <laughs> and they're like, in the middle of nowhere and they're like what are you doing here? Yeah, where's you? the helicopter? It was, all meant to, yeah. it was all meant to be closed off and what are you wearing? You know, like, what, what are you doing here? Where's the helicopter? Are you meant to be with a helicopter? Or, and why are you carrying rocks? Um, yeah and I spent the rest of the day with them and you know made some, made some good friendships you know with the Swift Water Rescue Crews and Police rescue crews, the fire rescue crews, the VRA were there with boats. Uh, everyone was showing up, but we just couldn't get through. So we, I just stuck with them because you know safety in numbers, especially with water crossings. And we then were able to make water crossings a bit quicker because of the training and equipment that they had. But we still only got to the edge of town at about five thirty. The last water crossing, I could, I could see through the, the stock route, the trees on the stock route. I could see where my property was, but I, I couldn't get there, and it was. Nightfall was coming, and they don't they don't go in the water. 
at night. So but the, the cops that were with us said they'd heard on the radio that the Parks Road was open. I knew that I wouldn't get over the bridge that separated the town to get to my property, but I, had, I just had to try everything, you know, in case some miracle happened. So I turned around, double back, flat out with a copper and a VRA guy towing a boat. We went via parks, got let through the barricades and found our way into west side, the west side of Yagera and could get through, but picked up. Um, so the, some of the people that were getting winched out off rooftops were getting dropped at the primary school on that side of town. So I ended up meeting up with a, uh, the partner and young daughter of a good friend of mine that had been winched off their roof and gave them a lift back. And by that, I'd been in contact with our crews all day. Like the moment my neighbor was, you know, Lauren was calling and saying pray for us sort of thing and my neighbor was getting swept away. I was on triple zero several times through the day saying, you know, this is what's happening. This is their lat long. You know, this is where you need to start your search for, for Rosemary Townsend. This is where my family are. Can you keep an eye on them? Can you help them? If this is happening to my family and we're, we're higher than the rest of the town, everyone needs saving. You, know, you need you need to get everyone in. Um, fortunately, a lot of helicopters got there very, very quickly through their own ways of being tasked. Information got passed very quickly once it started being passed, but I don't think it was being passed. I just don't think that it was getting through for a little while. But by jingies, by the time they got, you know, the message got through, they were there quick and they had a stiff headwind all day because of the, the storm activity that had been happening. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the wind in the wake of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's the one photo I've seen there of the town. Yeah. Completely flooded. But there's, there's two helicopters operating over the top of the town in that one photo. Yeah. 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 So they were at, I was sitting for quite a while at the Cadell camp draft grounds just watching the radar, the you know, the, your uh, flight radar, watching the, the the tasking board for our helicopters and in contact where I thought it was appropriate and I would be hindering in, any any crews yeah. because they knew that my family were there and I thought they were in grave danger. But I thought if they're in grave danger, everyone you know, needs rescuing now and it's a good chance that my family is possibly safer, which they ended up being. So, they, you know, an aircraft, a whole bunch of aircraft were tasked. I asked for as many favors as I could, you know, possibly ask and way more than I deserved any, you know, had any right to, to ask. Uh, and I mean, that must, that must have felt just surreal, like knowing, you know, seeing both sides of it happening at the same time for you, yeah, like being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, and you don't want not that they ever would. They're so professional, but yep. you don't want preferential treatment. Yeah, you know, because the town is you know we're, we're we're so connected. You care about everyone as much as, as your own family. Um, so you just you want help for everyone. You know, and I didn't. I knew that they would probably. I mean, I had a feeling they would need a lot more than what anyone could give them in terms of resources, but there was a lot more showed up than I thought would show up. There were, there were maybe half a dozen RFS contracted helicopters there. We had five helicopters there from just from our company. There are a couple of people who own helicopters privately in the area and, well, commercially, but on their own. They showed up to support in any way they could. Polar were there. I think McDermott were there at some point. There are there a whole swag of people there with helicopters and boats and, you know, all the other crews that come on the ground once they could get in 
it was it was like something else. I've never seen so many helicopters in one place other than on operations in the army. You you um, might not yeah. know what was going on with those bits and pieces, but have you talked to the, the crews and that since? Like, how is the coordination mm-hmm. happening? Like, were they is it just a you just had to look out and see in a void, or how was the the setup um, overhead? I haven't. I've only spoken on a personal level. Uh, yeah, there were some professional notes in there, but I've only spoken on a personal level with the crews, some of the crews that were involved, particularly the crews that helped my family and with our management. So I, I haven't. I could only you know speak about what I speculate happened based on what I was watching. It yeah, no, like that's right. It's just an aside. Yeah. as a as a yeah. professional interest point. Yeah, so it, it it looked from where I was sitting that there was possibly one or two command and control aircraft overhead that might have been coordinating entry and you know incoming outgoing heights and directions. I'm I'm not too sure, but they were certainly overhead. So you would expect they were command and control aircraft. Uh, there were my wife. The way my wife described it, she said she could see at one point four or five helicopters lined up, all winching people. You know, at once in town, as you could see them all at once. That's incredible. And there are a whole lot more than that at, at a couple of points in the day. And then there were people flying in and landing that couldn't winch and helping people out and, and then getting, ferrying people back with, you know, that couldn't, couldn't winch, didn't have the, the training on the people or, you know, the operating certificates or whatever. They were flying people back to Orange. So there was a, eventually a staging area at Orange Airport. And there was one at the showground. So a bunch of, you know, the aircraft flew into the showground. And I think there was some sort of meeting that happened there to coordinate it. Because uh, it was just chaos. It, the amount of people that needed saving, you would have just been, uh, you know, spotting. There were one in five people in our town got saved, uh, got rescued. So these crews must have just been overwhelmed. So they must have been in, in the hover, winching people out and easily identifying half a dozen other people from all of the vantage points that needed rescuing at the same time. And then all the while, you're trying to do you know, what is considered very complex in nature in terms of rescues, winching people off these areas and worrying roofs and buildings and cars and worrying about protecting the aircraft and debris flying up, which you quite often have in these circumstances. And then you're also almost in formation doing it because there were that many aircraft around. But that's sort of the only way I can imagine from the pieces I put together that yeah, I, I'd I'd really like to sit down with um, a couple of the guys that were involved and just get their take on it. Yeah, it, just, it must have been it must have been crazy. All right, so we've got so you haven't been able to get back to your house at, at this point. So you have to overnight waiting again, or do you get back during the night? Um, so as I I'd been in contact with the the crew in our company that were tasked because they had a little ways to come to to get to them. And they had a, a good headwind on the way. So they called me direct because they knew it's my family. I called my management straight away. Well, my immediate manager, who was on shift at the time, he couldn't answer because he was on a job. But he put it through to my management and various levels of management called me very, very quickly and said, mate, what's happening? Because it was a very desperate message. And, and I, I checked first to make sure, you know, he wasn't doing something critical at work. So I'd, and I could see he was working, so I messaged him rather than call, but it was a very desperate message. He passed it on very, very quickly and said, look, call triple zero, which I, of course, was doing. Uh, well, that's the thing to do. Uh, good advice. And then, yeah, he'd pass it on. Management called me. And 
they then started using their other resources to look into what was happening in the area. Because I, I still think at that point, it was quite early on in the piece in terms of communication and information getting out. And because the town, we're on the side of the town that got hit first, maybe, I don't know, but maybe my triple zero calls and calls for help might have been among the first. They certainly would not have been the first because there are people upstream of us, but we're on the edge of town. So I'm assuming while I was on the phone at triple zero and management trying to get help, dozens and dozens and dozens of other calls would have been coming in asking for it. So very quickly after that, my information would have been corroborated with a lot of other you know, triple zero calls and calls for help. So, um, yeah, they were feeding me information just to keep me as much in the loop as what was appropriate because I'm not air crew, you know, I'm, and there can't be any preferential treatment or anything, but they, at the same time, they're looking after their own and letting me know that help was on the way. But obviously there are others I knew. There, there were others that needed the help. Yeah, there's a, uh, a, a tasking right process, I guess. Yeah. yeah, 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 and that has to remain intact. Absolutely has to remain intact. Uh, you couldn't live with yourself if for whatever, you know, it just wouldn't happen in the first place, but if for whatever reason that was compromised, you couldn't live with yourself, you know, having us, your family, to be rescued, only, you know, to find out that they were and didn't potentially need it at the time and then someone else you, you knew or whatever. Yeah, you just you hate to think of the possibilities, but that would never happen. We have safeguards in place, and I, I would never ask that, and they would never allow that to happen. It was all very professional, but they were at the same time they were keeping me as in the loop as possible, just to give me some sort of hope, and also so that I could relay information between Lauren and them, so they didn't they understood that she was in a difficult situation, and I was in constant communications with her, so. What's your, the what's your phone battery like Sorry. at this stage? Oh, um, I have a – well, at the time, I just happened to have a jump-starting battery for my my full drive in the car. Okay. I don't always carry it, yep. but it's got a lot of power because I've got a cruiser, so it needs a, a bit of cranking power, and it's got a USB port on it, and that thing lasts forever. And it's yeah. just by sheer luck that I had it because I had that thing plugged in constantly. Because the, the car couldn't keep up the charging, you meant I was on the phone. Yeah. But that's all I could, that just, it couldn't do anything else but be on the phone. Just try and relay information to keep the crew in the loop uh, that were coming out to help them, to keep management in the loop, for them to keep me in the loop, for me to reassure Lauren. And we still at that point didn't know what was going to stop receding. So we're still having important discussions and trying to spare as much, you know, spend as much time together as we could. But it just, it seemed to happen, but the war bit seemed to happen really fast. Everything else and the response from emergency services seemed to happen really fast. But everything else, the, the whole day and the amount of time I spent in each spot on the highway, it seemed to take forever. It was the longest day. Yeah. So, yeah, by the time I, because I'd been in touch with the people and kept in the loop, um, by the time I eventually got in with some of the emergency services remaining in the convoy I was in, once we got into the western side of Yagara, found out, yeah, there's absolutely no way we're getting across. I knew by that time, in a couple of minutes, that my family, that they'd, they'd saved just about everyone. Like, I mean, this had gone on all day. They'd, they'd rescued it, everyone, as far as I'm aware. I, I'm, I can't back that up. Uh, and then my family was still cut off. I'm going to spend a very 
long cold night there, unprepared, and it was it was cold. So this time of year it was really cold, and with the amount of water about, and there's you know there's exposure, and you know they're in the sun all day. I said they'll buy a hay shed, but it's, it's like the remnants of a hay shed. It's not an actual hay shed they can get up in or anything. So yeah, they needed they still needed plucking out, and thankfully were were taken out. I think as one of the last flights out or recoveries for the day, and they were recovered back to Orange. So I was able to meet up back with them at the, the airport at work. I just drove straight to work and had my friend's wife and young daughter with me that I'd got from the other side because uh, her sister-in-law was our neighbor's daughter. So Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We were just sort of reuniting them too because at that point we didn't know that the rest of the family had survived because we couldn't contact them. We thought they were dead. Yeah. So we we're, were just trying to do what we could to reunite what was left of the family that were very, very close to us as well. It was a pretty emotional moment when we finally got reunited, you know, at the at our base back at Orange Airport, and they put us up there for the night, and were offering us the world in terms of sorting and accommodation and just every kind of support you could think of. I've received from this company, and and in fact, it doesn't feel right calling it a company because of the way that we're all friends and a lot of us have served together, but the way everyone. From the very top management, I mean, the top dude, down to like the guys at the bottom, so to speak, like me, you know, all my peers and all the supporting arms of the company, you know, engineering, operations, training and checking, psychologists, everyone has supported my family and even some of my friends. I mean, we've had all the expect, all the support that you would expect in this sort of situation and more from family and friends and even friends of friends and strangers and all the agencies that come into town. And that itself is very overwhelming. But I would argue that most people would be unfortunate enough to never experience the level of support from their workplace and their colleagues uh, that my family has. It's very heartwarming and overwhelming. And, And not just whole helicopters. New South Wales ambulance as well. Um, I think the, yeah. the first thing I became aware of, because uh, again, you know, it obviously happened pretty quick and, and in Queensland we didn't get that much kind of use. And we've joked previously, yeah. like, where the hell is Yagara? Like, it's it's just not, yeah. a, not a town that, that kind of rolls off the tongue in terms of knowing where places are. But I think it was, no. was Gunning, you posted on, on LinkedIn a photo standing at the front of your house where he'd been uh, helping to clean out. So, um, yeah. Was that the next day? Like, is this when you first get back to the house? Like, what you roll into your property and, and what's there? Uh, it all it, it sort of lasted, I think, over about five or six days as a major cleanup. And there were so many people from work, and, like ambulance and toll, come. I can't remember if it was the, the first immediate day after or the second. Because uh, Lauren and I came in that midday back into town uh, with our neighbor's daughter, brought her back into. Because we by then found out that her family had all survived, thankfully. So we were bringing her back to be with her family. We we got back just after lunch, and it was like driving into a war zone. Um, yeah, it, it was unbelievable to to see and, and and look at. I mean, you see that they sort of you see that kind of carnage, you know, in places in third world countries and some of the places the army gets sent, and that's that's shocking when you see it. But you, you're somewhat used to that. But for it to be in your own town and your own place and a lot of you know your own belongings and livestock strewn across the landscape, 
and and everyone else you know it's nothing really prepares you for that so that 24 hours after was a bit of a blur but i think um i think it was the second day after because it it takes a bit to organize that amount of people to come too. like work just they, they almost had like shifts of people coming and a lot of a lot of the guys were either just passing through for training like in terms of management or whatever and and felt compelled to put everything else on hold and come out and support us or they were still like they, some of them were on shift and supported the effort the day before or two days before when they made it out uh, and they would have been absolutely exhausted and then the drive out like, we're in the middle of nowhere <laughs> Yeah. So it's ours to get here from where they would have come from in, in some cases. Um, yeah, and, and, and all the while through this effort, they just kept showing up. And some of them were, were still, you know, they were driving an hour or so to get to us and then working a very physical, awful day doing all these crappy jobs and, and, and emotionally supporting us while we were there. As well as all the physical work and bringing stuff and catering, catering for us and doing everything essentially just to support us and then driving all the way back. And in some cases, then going to work and doing their shift, doing this kind of work. Yeah. And then doing it all again the next day with time away from their own family. And that would just, that, that was also a worry because you, you know the demands of the job yeah. through something like this. And, and then we're already at a high rate of effort before this happened. Uh, and, and then all the family challenges at home. Yeah. It, it, I was worried about the welfare on the roads and at work because you've got to have your rest. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, in terms of where you're at now, so the the house essentially mm-hmm. was trashed, like everything you've had. Yeah. You know, several hate, as you said, hectares of uh, of canola crops and, and mud just go through your head to shoulder height through the house. Yeah. So yeah. So where obviously it's not livable. So where are you kind of planted now? So I'm. Currently sitting at the front of my mother-in-law's house. They live in my mother-in-law and her husband live in uh, the state, and we manage a property for them that they have in town that they are uh, starting to retire and transition into, but aren't here yet. Uh, we're very fortunate enough that it wasn't affected, and they were gracious enough to to help us in many other ways, and also in this way, you know, lending us the house as long as we need it. Uh, so we just sort of yeah, you go and deal with all the you know the clean up and all, all those awful sort of jobs through the day, and then you come back here, and we're very very fortunate enough that we can escape all that and you know not forget about it, and not, absolutely not forget about it. But um, you get a break from it when so many people don't. Just they they're starting to now with temporary accommodation, but. A lot of these people have been living in the same. I mean, some of them are left town, while you know because they just can't live in the houses. Others don't have a choice, and they're still living in and around their their destroyed homes. The ones that can, or the houses are still where they're meant to be. Yeah, day and night. So we're we're very very fortunate. So we've our clean up has uh, somewhat finished. The, the initial stuff has finished, and we've asked everyone to take a break while we take a break. Uh, and, and that all the immediate help that we need, the time has come to draw that to an end. Yep. And the rest will be a very long, uh, protracted cleanup over the next couple of years and just trying to get things repaired and back to a new normal. Uh, yeah, and work have also been very 
generous to allow me a little, you know, as much time as I need to return to work. But I mean, I, I need to, I need to get back into a normal routine soon. But yeah. I've had so much help; it's hard to return to work when the community is still healing, and there's so much need needed to be done here uh, without helping with that somewhat. So my family's now currently trying to help a few businesses who are friends of ours get up and running and because the community relies upon them. We need we need business to start again and get the economy moving so that people don't want to move away. They've already started moving away, trying to keep a town intact. And so we just want to be involved with the volunteer effort, which is like something I've never seen before. I, I, I was... I lived through the Grantham floods. I was in Oki at the time and I was fortunate enough that I wasn't very involved with it. I didn't or, or experience any loss, but yeah, it's a town this small. You really need everyone to just do something to help it get it back on its feet. And it's given us so much. So yeah, it's only natural that we want to give back in any way we can. And work's been very supportive to give me a little bit of extra time to do that before I return. Well, mate, like it's, uh, I guess the hard part is like, as you said, it's an incredible story, just that component. But then there's a lot of focus there at the moment. I think, you know, the PM or the deputy PM, like you've got politicians rotating through town. I think you said they've come in on MRH army helicopters with all the, you know, the media and bits and pieces. But it's uh, a long recovery process after that that you guys uh, got ahead of you. I know, and again, this is, I guess, how we got kicked off as well uh, with, with James's uh, interview in the last uh, podcast. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your co-workers have, have put together a, a GoFundMe page there to provide a bit of support to try and essentially fill up the house again with, you know, all the kids stuff, all those sorts of things. And yeah. as you said, there's been a, you know, been a big response physically, financially there, and then I guess the excess will, will go into neighbours and all those bits and pieces. So the, yeah. the, yep. the quick link... There again, there'll be links on the on the show notes for this podcast. But uh, the one that's yep. set up and ready to go right now, rotarywingshow.com dot com forward slash one one one. So the the number is one one one. That's just for the the last episode was episode one hundred and eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, this will be one hundred and twelve. But um, yeah, dude, like it, it's, it's a hard road ahead, and especially being in that position where you've been on the the helping side for. For so long, as you said, you're normally the the calming force that turns up with all the resources to make things better. Mm. To now be on the other side, and yeah, look, uh, that's uh, that's tough for anyone to deal with, mate. And the heart goes out there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it, it's taking a bit of unpacking, but um, yeah, that yeah, you can't do it all at once. It will just happen over time. Yeah. Yep, and I think. Helicopters in general are, are such a small community and to have that particular uh, culture and community that you do have in that organisation because so many have, people have, a, as you said, have served together and have known each other for like their entire professional life. Mm. Yeah, I think you guys have got something good going on there. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm very fortunate. Well, we're very fortunate to be surrounded by so many incredible, uh, generous people. Yeah, no one in Yagara can get flood cover. Uh, or very very few, uh, so we really rely on that support. We're very very grateful to all the people who have showed up to support us in all, all the various ways that they have, 
and in, including the, the people who so graciously donated some of the hard-earned money to help us get back on our feet and get a, a roof over our head because it's going to be a long road ahead and we really need it, uh, every bit of help that we can get. Uh, so, yeah, I really want to thank everyone involved from the toll and ambulance family, uh, my own family and my wife's family, all of our friends in the local area and in the community who, you know, some of those have been affected, friends and family that have come from interstate and, you know, all over the joint. We, we couldn't do it without everyone, you know, around us. And we're, we're really feeling very, very uh, grateful to be licking our wounds right now uh, and, and be so well supported. Well, Kyle, thanks for yeah taking the time out. I'll let you you know get back to looking after your family there, and uh, yeah, hopefully we've got different circles of contacts there that may not have been able to be in contact straight away uh, with you. It might just give them uh, some background of uh, what you've been going through. So, mate, uh, yeah. yeah, we'll uh, we'll check in in uh, in the coming weeks and see how you're getting on. Thanks so much for your time, Mick.